Whether it's the Joker or Darth Vader or the shark on Jaws, villains have always intrigued me. Perhaps it's because they usually get the best lines, like, why so serious? Let's put a smile on that face. Or, all I have are negative thoughts. Or, say my name. Or, when everyone is super, no one will be. Or, oh, Anna, if only there was someone out there who loved you. And who can forget, I am your father. <laughs> In the Marvel Cinematic Universe, no character gets better lines than the mischievous villain Loki. In the film The Avengers, Loki is trying to dominate a crowd outside of a museum in Germany, and he, he shouts, kneel before me, and everybody just kind of panics, and nobody kneels. They're kind of screaming a little bit, and then he does kind of a magic trick and, and stomps his scepter on the ground, and everybody is terrified, and everybody kneels. And then Loki says this, is not this simpler? Is this not your natural state? It's the unspoken truth of humanity that you crave subjugation. The bright lure of freedom diminishes your life's joy in a mad scramble for power, for identity. You were made to be ruled. In the end, you will always kneel. There's truth to that, isn't there? We always kneel. The only question is, before whom will you kneel? I want you to kneel before King Jesus, because Jesus is a new kind of king. That's the big idea I want to show you from our passage this morning. We should worship Jesus because he is a new kind of king. So if you're not already there, open your Bible up to Matthew chapter 21. It'll help you if you follow along as we work through the text together. We've been walking through the gospel of Matthew for a year and a half, maybe two. I'm not quite sure. Some of you say it feels like 10. Um, that's on you, not on me. But anyways, um, the first 20 chapters of Matthew's gospel summarize the first 33 years of Jesus's life. Now, in chapter 21, the final eight chapters of Matthew's gospel are devoted to one week, okay? 20 chapters, 33 years, eight chapters, one week. There's a message there. Everything in this gospel is climaxing in what's going to happen this week, beginning with his entry into Jerusalem on Sunday, culminating in his betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and then his resurrection from the dead. So there is a shift beginning in this chapter in Matthew's gospel as Jesus is marching into the city. He is marching towards his death. And our job is to worship this Jesus because he is a new kind of king. I want to show you two reasons from our text why Jesus is a new kind of king who's worthy of our worship. Number one, Jesus is in control over everything. 
Jesus is in control over everything. Yevgeny Prigozhin is a Russian oligarch and a mercenary leader who was once a close confidant of Vladimir Putin. Uh, he was often called Putin's chef until last month when he led his paramilitary forces to a revolt that Putin called treason. Uh, the world watched as Prigozhin's private military forces withdrew from Ukraine, shot down Russian Air Force pilots, and then marched on Moscow. In many ways, uh, the conflict between Putin and Prigozhin is still unfolding, but it revealed something that has stunned much of the watching world. Putin's autocratic control over Russia is crumbling. Even the most powerful kings and rulers of this world are not really in control. That's why we need a new kind of king. And Jesus is that king. He is a king who has control over everything. You see that beginning in verse 1 in your Bibles. Look at verses 1 and 2. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. They're walking towards the city, and by the way, Jesus has been with his disciples the whole time, walking towards the city, and Jesus says, when you get there, you're going to come to such and such a house, and you're going to find a donkey and a colt, and you're going to see them, and you can just grab them and bring them to me. Now, here's the question. How did Jesus know? He didn't sneak off into the village and spot the donkey and the colt. He didn't send somebody a text message. He didn't get onto Google Earth and, oh yeah, there's a donkey and a colt right there. How did Jesus know? Because Jesus controls everything. He controls the heartbeats of every donkey and every colt everywhere on the planet. He controls every fiber of every rope. He sees everything. He knows everything. So he knows exactly where every animal is at every point in the universe. Jesus' control is also evident in the fact that he will ride into the city on the colt that the uh, Mark, Gospel of Mark and Luke tell us had never been ridden before. So picture Jesus marching into the city on an unbroken colt, teeming with millions of people gathered to celebrate the Passover festival, and the colt is just riding along. Why? Because he knows the voice of the God who created him. Jesus is in control over everything. By the way, that's not merely something that we deduce from these verses in Matthew's gospel. It's really all over the scriptures. One clear place that it's seen is in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17, that say this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him, what? All things hold together. Why is your heart still beating today, friend? Because Jesus is giving it rhythm. 
Why is it that things in your life are happening as they are? Because Jesus, in his sovereignty, has ordained it to be so. Why is it that the air conditioning isn't working today? I don't know, but Jesus does. He is in control of everything. And one of the things we're going to notice as we continue in this story is that Jesus appears to be increasingly out of control. For example, one of the 12 disciples is going to betray Jesus or deny Jesus or betray Jesus, right? Um, you might think, well, if you're really in control, then couldn't you keep those 12 guys in line? Another disciple of the disciples is going to betray Jesus or deny Jesus. Sorry. The heat's getting in my head. <laughs> All of them are going to run away as Jesus is arrested. Jesus is going to appear overnight with some sort of a mock trial with the religious leaders of the day. They're going to falsely accuse him, and he's going to be condemned guilty. He's going to go before Pilate. He's going to be flogged by the Roman soldiers. He's going to have his arms stretched out and nails pierce his wrists and feet. He's going to have a crown of thorns shoved upon his head. He does not look in control, and yet he is. You see, in that moment... In leading up to, including the cross of Christ, Jesus is in perfect control. Listen to what the disciples would later say about that day in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Everything that happened to Jesus this final week of his earthly ministry happened exactly according to plan. Now, if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so grateful that you're here this morning. Uh, I would suggest to you that this is maybe one of the best places that you can be if you're not a follower of Jesus. But let me just say to you, dear friend, that Jesus is in control whether you recognize his control or not. You might say, well, I don't want Jesus to be in control. Well, it's not up to you whether Jesus is in control or not. His control is not dependent upon you recognizing it. His control is absolute. So I would plead with you, dear friend, we're so grateful that you're here. We would invite you to learn more about this Jesus so that you can give him your life and submit to his control today. If you're here and you'd like to talk to someone more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to submit your life to his control, talk to me or any of the people that were up on the platform or someone near you. Just say, hey, I want to talk to somebody about that. Somebody's going to help you. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, do you see how much comfort can come from understanding that Jesus is in control? Anybody feel like your life has been spinning out of control lately? Can anybody relate with that? Jesus is still in control. If 
When Jesus appeared to be most out of control, he was actually, you could argue, most in control, then that means if you belong to him, your out-of-control life is never out of his control. You might feel like everything is falling apart, but everything is actually coming exactly the way that God intends it to. That's incredibly good news. For those of you that are parents of young children and you're not sleeping at night, guess what? He's still in control. For those of you that are going through medical issues that are making it really challenging for you to be faithful and just do the ordinary things, guess what? Jesus is still in control. If you recently lost a job or, or lost a loved one, guess what? Jesus is still in control. He is sovereign. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. And he's good. He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So, Christian, you can take comfort in the good news that Jesus is in control even when you're not. The disciples might have wondered, well, what's going to happen when we enter the city of Jerusalem and find this donkey and colt and just take them and bring them to Jesus? To the little kids in this room, that sounds a lot like theft, doesn't it? There's a donkey and colt, just grab it, right? Jesus anticipates that objection, and he tells his disciples in verse 3, if anyone says anything to you, like, stop, thief, or whatever, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. The only thing that we know about the owner of this donkey and this colt is that he submitted his possessions to King Jesus. That's all we know. Perhaps... That's the main way that you and I need to apply this truth about Jesus being in control. Christian, have you given control over everything to King Jesus? Your finances. Have you given Jesus control of that to Jesus? You trust him. He is good, and you can use your money for his glory and even if it seems like you might not have enough to make it through the month, that he's in control and he will supply every need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Have you submitted your relationships to King Jesus? The young people in this room are of dating age. As you consider that young lady or that young man that you want to pursue a relationship with, are you willing to commit that, submit that to the control of King Jesus? Are you willing to say, listen, it's not what I want, it's what he wants. First and foremost, I belong to Jesus. And what he wants for me is better than what I could ever want for myself. And so I'm going to commit to follow what he teaches. How about your sexuality? The sexual desires that you have. Are you willing to submit those to King Jesus? Are you willing to say, it is not what I want that is most important. It is not how I feel that is most important, but what God says, what he says about me and what he says to me, that is what matters most. I'm going to submit that to King Jesus. What about your career? What about your hobbies? What about your entertainment? Are you willing to give all of those things over to King Jesus? Let me ask you a question, followers of Jesus in this room. What's the one thing in your life that you would say, oh, you know, the old meatloaf song, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that? What's the thing for you? You know, I'll give anything to Jesus, but not that. D Jesus, just don't tell me to give that to you. 
Can I challenge you? Talk to another Christian about that thing this week. Just say, you know, we're listening to the sermon, and that's the thing that the Holy Spirit was reminding me of. That's the thing that I feel like I can't give to him. And ask that brother, that sister, to come alongside you and help you and pray with you and pray for you and help keep you accountable and speak into your life so that you might grow in your trust of King Jesus because he is in perfect control. Jesus is a new kind of king because he has control over everything, but also, number two, Jesus offers peace that's eternal. Jesus has control over everything, and Jesus offers peace that's eternal. About 600 years after Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem, there was another triumphal entry recorded in history. It was January 11th, 630 A.D., and a man named Muhammad mounted a war horse and rode into the city of Mecca, surrounded by 400 cavalry and 10,000 foot soldiers. When Muhammad rode into the city, the people that welcomed him were absorbed into his movement. Those who rejected him were killed or enslaved. In short order, the city of Mecca fell, and Muhammad sat on a throne as its new religious, political, military leader. Muhammad's actions reflect the way that kings usually work. Their kingdoms don't expand through peace, but through war. It's significant, isn't it, that Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey to wear a crown of thorns, and Muhammad enters the city of Mecca riding a war horse to sit on a throne. The temporary peace that Muhammad would offer to the city of Mecca was a peace that would have to be maintained, a peace that would have to be fought for. And 1,500 years later, in his name, people are still fighting for that peace. Whether it's Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar or Muhammad or Napoleon Bonaparte or Vladimir Putin, the kings of this world have always worked that way. That's why we need a new kind of king. Jesus is the king who offers peace that is eternal. We see that beginning in verse 4. Look at verses 4 to 7. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. About 550 years before Palm Sunday, a prophet named Zechariah wrote the words quoted in verse 5 to encourage the people of Jerusalem. When you see the word Zion there, that's often in the Bible a nickname for Jerusalem because Mount Zion was the highest hill in the city, so often Jerusalem is called Zion. And so this prophet Zechariah, is, he's writing something to the exiles in Jerusalem who have grown discouraged because all their kings keep failing them. Read books, the books of First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings in the Old Testament, and you'll see one king after another, one failure after another, over and over and over again. And Zechariah promises God's people, listen, there's a king who's going to come. 
He's going to come entering the city, riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. That's your king. He's going to be humble. He's going to be different. He's going to bring salvation. There's a king who's coming who's not going to be like all these other kings. He's not going to disappoint you. He's going to save you. And how are they going to know the king when he arrives? One way was by looking at his transportation. You can learn a lot about a man by his transportation, can't you? I mean, your impressions of a guy are going to change a lot if he's driving a minivan or a Harley or a Ferrari. You're just going to have a vision in your mind of that guy, but depending on which of those vehicles he's driving. Jesus is going to enter into the city of Jerusalem riding on a colt, a donkey colt. Now, it's not so much that kings never rode donkeys. Really, what's significant is when kings rode donkeys. Um, one uh, commentator said this, kings and generals ride war horses to rain mighty blows on their foes, but no one rains down blows from a donkey unless the foes are slow-moving midgets. When a king would ride into war, he would ride on a war horse, just like Muhammad rode into Mecca. A war horse was a picture of power and authority. But when a king rode a donkey, he would do it as a picture of peace. So when Solomon enters the city of Jerusalem, he enters on his coronation day riding a donkey, a symbol of peace. He's going to bring peace to the people of God. Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem riding a donkey to symbolize to his people, I come here bringing peace. But the people of Jerusalem didn't get it. We know they didn't get it because of the way they responded. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, it's very clear by those verses that these people do see Jesus as a king. You notice it by what they do. They spread their uh, cloaks on the ground. That's the same way that King Jehu was welcomed in 2 Kings chapter 9. It's a common way to show your submission to a king. They spread palm branches on the ground. They did the same thing a few hundred years earlier when Simon Maccabeus liberated Jerusalem and entered the city. It was a sign of submission, a sign of adoration. You're our king. And notice also what they said. Uh, first, they shout, Hosanna. Hosanna literally means, God, save us. But it had kind of morphed into kind of like a nationalistic cry, like when the Brits say, God save the king, or when we Americans say, God bless America. Now, you can say, God bless America, and your posture in your heart can be, I really want God to bless our nation, or you can say, God bless America, and in your mind, you're thinking, this is what we're owed, because we're the best. We deserve the blessing of God. That's a nationalistic sort of thought process. And that's what was happening to the people of Jerusalem. They're crying out, God, save us, but they don't want the salvation that Jesus is coming to bring. 
John MacArthur writes this, the crowd on that day was not interested in Jesus saving their souls, but only in his saving their nation. That's what they wanted. They also called Jesus the son of David. Of course, there's nothing wrong with calling Jesus the son of David. Last chapter, chapter 20, when Jesus encounters these two blind men, they cry out, son of David, have mercy on us. We know that the Messiah came from the line of David, but when they cry out, son of David, they're probably thinking of David as the Goliath-killing warrior king. And that's the kind of king that they want as he enters the city. Kill the Romans. Set us free. Deliver us. Give us peace. And then they quote Psalm 118.26, which says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're publicly proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not the Messiah that they want. If you think I'm being a little too hard on the crowd here, just look with me at verses 10 and 11. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. You remember earlier in the Gospels, someone said to kind of make fun of Jesus, does anything good come out of Nazareth? They call him the prophet from Nazareth. Now, that's not necessarily inaccurate, but it is inadequate, isn't it? Jesus, yes, he is a prophet. He is the prophet, but he is much more than the prophet. You remember the question that Jesus posed to Peter when he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the king of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, Jonah's son, because Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who is Jesus? He is the prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. He's the king. He's the Lord of lords. So why did the crowd get it so wrong? Luke's gospel answers that question in Luke chapter 19. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, just think about it for a second. What do you think the look was on Jesus' face as he entered the city? Was it smiling in triumph? Luke tells us that he was weeping. He's riding on the donkey with tears in his eyes as he enters the city. Why? He wept over the city saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. The crowd the crowd's problem was that they were looking for the wrong kind of peace. They were looking to Jesus for earthly peace instead of eternal peace. And 2,000 years later, there are many people in the same name of Jesus, many crowds of people that are looking for the exact same thing. Some look to Jesus for guaranteed healing from sickness as long as they have enough faith. Some look to Jesus for guaranteed prosperity, as long as they give enough money. Some look to Jesus as a formula for the perfect family, as long as we follow the right principles. Some look to Jesus to provide their best life now. And just like the crowds in Jerusalem, 
They use all the right language, but they're looking for all the wrong things. So, dear brother, sister, friend, do not, first and foremost, look to Jesus for earthly peace. Look to him for eternal peace. That's the peace that Jesus is entering the city to provide. We learn about that peace in places like Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's what that means. Apart from Jesus, because of your sin, because of my sin, all of us are at war with God. And because of that war with God, because we are not right with God, we deserve his wrath and his judgment. But Jesus came to this earth, entered the city of Jerusalem to absorb the wrath, the punishment of God on the cross in our place. That's how we have peace with God. That's the peace that Jesus offers. So if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you must repent, turn from your sins, And trust in Jesus. He's the only way for you to have the only peace that really matters for eternity. In our text next week, we're going to watch Jesus, his first order of business in the city of Jerusalem. You know what it is? He brandishes a whip like Indiana Jesus, and he walks into the temple, and he kicks over the tables and drives out the money changers. Why is that significant? Because Jesus' offer for peace is temporary. He enters into the city riding a donkey, offering peace, but he's coming to judge. On April 26, 2005, a woman named Jennifer Wilbanks was supposed to get married, but she got cold feet, so she did what any bride would do in that situation. She ran away to Albuquerque. What ensued was an international media frenzy and a frantic search for a runaway bride that would end up costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sometime during the search, Jennifer Wilbanks started to feel bad for her fiancé, and she didn't want him to think that she ran away because she had cold feet, and so she called him, and she told him that she had been abducted and abused, and she was in great need of help. She even faked a 911 call. Eventually, the authorities caught up to her, and she was charged with a felony. Here's the deal about Jennifer Wilbank. She left home because she didn't want to stand before a groom. She returned home standing before a judge. This morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you have the opportunity to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you want time to think. Maybe you need space. Maybe you're afraid. Maybe you have cold feet. I want to plead with you, dear friend, don't delay. Don't run away. You can kneel before Jesus today as your Savior, or you can kneel before Jesus that day as your judge. To the Christians in this room, how do we apply Jesus' offer for peace? Let me just suggest one thing. Don't expect peace in every area of your life. Jesus promises eternal peace. He does not promise peace in your home or in your marriage or in your workplace or even within your church family all the time. 
Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In other words, the peace I'm going to give to you is not the type of peace you normally think of where everything is as it should be. The peace that Jesus offers is not a peace from storms, but through them. A peace that enables us to sing when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he still is all my hope and stay. Jesus is a new kind of king because he offers peace that is eternal. As Loki stood before the kneeling crowd, one man had the courage to stand up. After Loki finished his little speech and says, in the end, you will always kneel, an old man in the crowd stands up and he says, not to men like you. To which Loki replies, there are no men like you. And the old man says, there are always men like you. He's right, isn't he? Power-hungry dictators and rulers are a dime a dozen. But Jesus is not one of them. He is a new kind of king. Christian, we don't have to bow the knee. We don't have to kneel to the kings and rulers of this world because we've already bowed the knee to King Jesus. And if you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We plead with you, kneel before him today. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for sending us your beloved son. Jesus, we thank you for your entry into the city of Jerusalem and what it showed you about your sovereign control and about your eternal peace. We pray that we would respond to that the way that the disciples did, not the way that the crowds did. May we respond with faith and trust and obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.